farmer who wants to acquire more land near their operation may only see that ground come up for sale maybe once in their lifetime. But even then, they still need to come up with enough capital at just the right time in a way that doesn't financially cripple their business in the short term. There's nothing I'd rather own than land. Nothing. <laughs> it's, it's the best investment ever. However, it is incredibly capital intensive. It's hard to cash flow, and it's not part of my operational growth strategy. That's Iowa farmer Kyle Maiman of MBS Family Farms. He's been working with Fractal, a new platform that allows investors to buy farmland in partnership with farmers, which in turn gives farmers like Kyle the capital to expand their operation. And the beauty of the thing here is, is that deal flow doesn't have to be dependent on an auction or an available property. It's dependent on a partnership with a farmer. Fractal CEO Ben Gordon says this model is already happening locally between individuals, and now he wants to bring it to scale with their recently launched platform. We really do think that farmers are a better investment than telling farmers how to farm. In other words, letting their own self-interest guide that investment decision. This isn't out of the goodness of our own heart. It is a great prudent financial decision for investors, and we think will help change farmland investing for good. Providing equity capital for fractional ownership of farmland on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Uh, today's episode and every episode this quarter are brought to you by the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your soy checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with a supply chain to impact your bottom line. Having a sound plan delivers results, and you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. That's unitedsoybean.org. Thank you once again to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Ben Gordon and Kyle Maiman. Ben is the founder and CEO of Fractal Agriculture, a passive farmland investment partner that invests alongside farmers rather than competing against them for land. After serving as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, Ben worked in ag tech, management consulting, and private equity due diligence before his most recent role leading Corteva AgriSciences' carbon program. Kyle Mayman is a partner at MBS Family Farms, a successful family-owned, family-operated corn and soybean operation in Plainfield, Iowa. Kyle and his family are ardent stewards of the land, leaning into sustainability balanced, of course, with profitability. I've had the opportunity to actually interact with both Ben and Kyle in different capacities throughout the years. Uh, I worked with Ben's team at Corteva to host some webinars last year on soil health, and Kyle was featured on this show as part of our farm data series with intent back on episode 226, which I think would be in 2020, if I remember right. Uh, so it was fun to reconnect with both of them, and we have a very fluid and comfortable dynamic on this podcast. Whether you're a farmer, investor, or just someone curious about the future of agriculture, I think you'll find something in here of interest. We'll kick things off by really getting right to the point about what Fractal is doing, having Ben explain the thought process behind the business, then having Kyle share why he's excited about the potential here for his farming operation. Well, 
I think it might be good to frame up exactly what Fractal is doing, uh, maybe to start with Ben. And so my understanding is, you know, if a farmer is out there, they have some land, they want to acquire more land, what they're going to do is allow an outside investor to come in and take an equity stake in some of their own land to free up some cash so that they can they can kind of buy more. Am I on the right track there and maybe fill in some of the gaps on kind of what you're doing? Yeah, I'd say you're, you're definitely on the right track, but I'd maybe even step back one step further and say, you know, what are we trying to solve for? And that's really just a farmer need for equity capital. A lot of great ag banks out there, but if you, if you look at farming, it's more expensive to do today than at any point in the past. And you look at input costs, rising equipment, and of course, land. And it means that even great, well-capitalized operations often need capital and the bank can only take you so far. And so what we're trying to do is fill that gap. Uh, today. And we do so by co-investing in land, like you described, Tim, um, alongside farmers versus against them. And when you say, you know, the banks are great, but there's still this extra need. Can you help us understand that a little bit better? Where where do, where does like uh, what a bank is willing to do end and where Fractal might step in begin? Yes. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the great folks at places like Farmer Mac or Farm Credit, they'll typically lend 40 to 60 percent of the value of a field, which means you have to bring out, you know, the, the other 40 to 60% yourself in cash. And you know, we know that operating margins in farming have typically been steady to slightly declining. And so you know, it's an industry that's capital intensive. You don't have a ton of cash that's being generated. Oftentimes you need equity capital. Every other capital intensive industry like mining or other similar ones to ag you know, kind of have this. And so either you have to kind of sit there and wait to accrue enough cash to go do the next deal. Well, you know, maybe a great deal across the, across the road is coming by, or you can use someone like Fractal to help fill that gap while maintaining uh, you know, control of your operation, at least in the case of working with us. Right. Okay. And Kyle, I know you are an ambitious farmer in Iowa and uh, maybe talk about, have you run into this problem before? Yeah. You know, I, I, I always mentioned that uh, the problem with real estate uh, that's across the fence from you is that you want it, it's worth it, but it never comes up when you're well positioned, right? Uh, whenever there there's funds available, there's no deals. And whenever there's deals, there's no funds available. And uh, real estate has always been a timing issue. And it seems like you need as many tools in the toolbox as we can have in order to be able to capitalize on those when they do become available, because unfortunately, we don't get to pick. And uh, it's unfortunate that the demographic we're in right now, there's an enormous transfer of wealth in farm real estate, right? And and so there are properties that are for sale, you know, all the time. They're still still not uh, enough to hardly meet the demand uh, because there's there is some pent up demand. But the thing is, is that uh, when the one across you becomes available, or when a, a family that you've been working with may want to exit because of uh, legacy issues or, you know, things get too fragmented within within their families. There's just all kinds of different reasons why timing never seems to work. And so to have as many, many bullets in the gun as we can to be able to acquire properties or at least be able to make a run at them when it's when it, the time is right, when they are available. I mean, we just have to do that. This is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, not a smaller and smaller problem because of the demographic. Right. And have you experienced that before where some property adjacent to you came available and you weren't able to acquire it for some reason? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And those are always the ones that are, uh, quote unquote, the best deal as well. Uh, you know, anybody can pay too much for a property, but uh, when you really get a, a, a deal and if you've been watching for one in a while, um, the best deals will come up when you are either the most strapped for cash or that I don't have other resources, uh, you know, other maybe investment folks that, that I've worked with in the past. Or again, there's just not money when there's real estate or real estate when there's money. And so, yeah, that's happened. That's happened before. And unfortunately, I'm like, man, I chased 10 deals to find one as good as the one I had to pass up. That doesn't make you feel good. Right. And you had to pass it up because of the upfront cost for the down payment to match that kind of 40 to 60 percent Ben was talking about with the banks. Is that right? Correct. Correct. It's either that or, you know, I, I mean, farmers in general, you know, there seems like there's always one step further that we can take, but it doesn't mean that we should. Right. And so I shouldn't say that I've always passed up on things because I couldn't have absolutely made it work, but it wouldn't have been the prudent financial decision for me to be as stretched thin as it would have made me. Right. And so I think that's an important part of it too, is that, uh, you know, as, Farms consolidate as there is uh, less and less uh, farmers out there. Uh, you know, capital is a is a very finite resource for production ag, and to protect working capital like it is gold is is really really important. And so, to put myself in a bad position just because something came up across the fence doesn't always make good sense either. Sometimes the best deals are the ones you let pass that cost too much. The ones that really suck to pass on are the ones that didn't cost too much, but you had to pass because it would have put you in a bad financial situation. Yeah. And you have no idea if that land will ever come up for sale again in your lifetime, right? No, never. It never will if it's across the fence or even just in a good proximity, right? The the ones that are that are the closest, you just, just as well plan on that. It's a once in a generation opportunity. Yeah. What What is it in, in Iowa? It's a uh, farmland comes for a given piece of farmland comes for sale on average every 65 years. So that's something we never talk about, right? We talk about the 40 chances a farmer has to grow a crop, but we never talk about the one chance they might have to expand their their acreage to a new field. And Tim, I think it's important that, you know, farmers, I mean, to each his own, but I think it's important to differentiate the two and understand that operationally for me, you know, purchasing a piece of property is not part of my growth strategy. It's part of my investment strategy. Operationally, I have growth strategy things that we're trying to do all the time, and that but but purchasing property is really part of my investment strategy. It's what I do with the profits from operating, and I think that gets confused sometimes. It's just I think it's just important to differentiate between the two because one is very much a capital decision, and one is very much an operational decision. Uh, tell me more about that. Well, I, I think that over time, those two get blurred because as a sole proprietor, our, our history, our lineage, you know, everything comes out of the same checkbook. And so when we see a property for sale and we buy it, oh, that's, that's new growth. For, let's give an example. I, I, maybe I'm renting a farm from Ben and I've been renting that farm from Ben for 20 years. And Ben says, you know what, it's time for me to sell this farm. Kyle, would you like to buy it? I say, absolutely, Ben, how much would you like to sell for? We get together and, and I do a deal operationally, that's the worst deal that I can do because I was renting that farm and making a profit on it before I decided to buy it and make it where it couldn't make its own payments. So now it's actually a cash flow drag rather than a cash flow positive because I already farmed it. Believe it or not, financially, the best farm that you can buy is one that you're not already farming. Now, I'd say the one, the one thing that's starting to turn the tables on that, especially in places like Iowa, is you're starting to see investment and management models shift. 
So there are things like rental auctions now. And so you're starting to see the kind of that landowner share increasing and increasing over time. And you know that is a risk for folks that have taken a rent-heavy approach. Similarly, you're starting to see more, I'd say, um, transactional forms of custom farming where farmers aren't even keeping the agronomic decision-making that they have. It's that farm manager that's saying, this is what you're going to plant. These are the passes I want you to make on that field. We're going to market the grain for you. And so I think there's this juxtaposition where Kyle's model is absolutely correct. And, you know, like we, we certainly encourage folks to expand at what's right for their overall business strategy across the board. But sometimes not having security on that asset can be a massive threat to that same legacy that Kyle was talking about, of not wanting to stretch yourself. So imagine any other business where you could lose 5, 10, 15 percent of your operating base, your revenues. Just at, at the drop of a hat, because somebody passes away in the next generation doesn't want to be a, a farm owning landlord anymore. Like that is a massive risk to the family farm. And that was, you know, we continue to hear these stories over and over about these. And while it's a that's a really tough scenario for a farmer, an even tougher scenario is not buying that land and somebody else coming in and renting it and you having all this equipment and infrastructure to support that wider base. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't want you to think that buying land is not part of my my strategy and part of my I mean, let's just be real clear. There's nothing I'd rather own than land. Nothing. (laughs) It's it's the best investment ever. However, it is incredibly capital intensive. It's hard to cash flow. It's all the things that we've talked about. And it's not part of my operational growth strategy. It's what I do with my profits. But uh, there is no question, Ben, that there is an enormous risk in turnover because things become very tightly held. And it, it because it's so capital intensive, even even with tools like Fractal doesn't mean that you should um, buy every property that's available. It, you, it still has to be the right decision you know, versus the market and versus your operation. It doesn't change how I would make the decision. It just it gives me another tool to make the decision with. Yeah. No, I appreciate this. This is, this is one of the best conversations about farm risk management, I think, that I've had on the show because uh, it captures some of the nuance. I mean, I think most farmers would say exactly what you just said, which is there's nothing they'd rather own you know, than more land, but they can't jeopardize their operating business in an effort to do so. So that's sort of the pickle that, that you're in and where Fractal sort of comes along. I'm curious, Kyle, for, from your standpoint, where did you first hear about this? I have a feeling you probably knew Ben and maybe other members of the team from a previous life. Uh, where, where did you first hear about this and, and uh, what is your involvement exactly in the company? You bet. So I've known uh, Ben uh, for for a good while from you know previous lives, uh, maybe maybe two or three generations already of of previous lives and and podcasts and roundtables and things. And uh, I've always enjoyed his company. And uh, we had uh, some mutual friends that uh, I don't think Ben and I had spoke of. Uh, you know that he had a, a concept that he was wanting to chase after until a mutual friend of ours said, "Hey, I have this good." Good friend of mine, uh, uh, Ben. You should you should really meet up with him. He's been in the carbon space and stuff. And I said, wouldn't be chance be Ben Gordon. And and she said yes. And then uh, you know we uh, we got together and uh, visited a little bit about his concept. And honestly, I, I Ben, I probably told you the very first time conceptually, this is something that I've always I, I've wanted to figure out uh, fractional ownership of of farmland for a long time because it is so capital intensive. I'm involved in some uh, hog buildings and things of that nature that conceptually I've always thought would be interesting to to do with farmland, but it, I, I didn't know how to do it. And there wasn't, uh, you know, tools to to be able to to do that. So I guess I've been along on this journey for a, a while, I guess, with Ben. And I, and I suggested that, you know, because this is a valuable tool to me and my family, I'm interested in in helping along the way and understanding and learning and being a bit of a, 
maybe a pilot or a, um, hey, what do you think of this type of guy? And if you've known Ben very long, Tim, you know, he'll take full advantage of that offer. Uh, he, will, he will absolutely uh, uh, give you an opportunity to, uh, to give your opinion. And not that my opinion is always right, but I, uh, I, I always tell Ben, I've always got an opinion. It probably isn't right, but I've always got an opinion, at least. I'll let you know what I think. And Ben, you know, the the concept, as Kyle mentioned, of like fractional ownership or an outside investor coming in alongside a farmer to invest is not a new concept, but the, the sort of the devil's in the details, right? How do you make it work? So maybe give us some of the how uh, of how this is going to work between what fractal does for both investors and for farmers like Kyle. Yeah, I'd say, you know, the, the core of how it works, uh, it starts with some common sense. Um, you know, who is the best manager of that asset over the long term? And we really believe that is a self-interested farmer with aligned incentives. So everything from that, that that we'll talk about just like works backwards from that concept. So, you know, the, the how is we go in, you know, let's just say a field that Kyle owns today will take up to a 45% investment. Kyle will take the proceeds from that and reinvest it in his business. And someone like Kyle has more opportunities that are profitable opportunities than typically has dollars to invest those, even with all the creativity that you see from someone like Kyle. And then on that investment that we have, Kyle's going to have the operational decision making. We want that farmer to be in the driver's seat agronomically and financially to be making the decision on that ground in a self-interested manner. We just think that is a better financial investment. Yes, I come from an agricultural background. I've worked with farmers like Kyle for you know, over half a decade at this point and, and built some tools for them. But at the end of the day, like this should be a selfish thing for an investor. And so, you know, the cash flows look pretty darn similar from a traditional investor relationship. You know, you're going to pay an annual payment at the end of a term. You know, you're going to have to either buy us out or renew for another another term. And at the end of the day, it's um, it's really just kind of traditional farmland investing from a cash flow perspective. But we're we're really just providing a form of equity financing to someone like Kyle that looks a lot like a lot of things that happen on the ground. It just isn't standardized. It isn't transparent. It isn't productized in a way where it's ready when you need it, like Kyle was talking about before. And it's structured in a way that you know what happens in all of the downsides and the farmer truly has control. And you know the scenarios where, you know, things can go upside down and you can kind of then control them from there. And for the farmer, you know, so let's say, you know, he's he's selling a, a fractional ownership to that field of, of 40%. And then he's going to want to take that cash, go buy this, let's say this other piece of ground and leverage. So he's going to want to get a loan against the money he has for this next piece of ground. Does that change his underlying fundamentals to a lender of saying like, okay, your debt to equity has actually changed now because you don't have that equity you just sold. And does that create a difficult dynamic there? Uh, it actually creates a great dynamic for, for a lender uh, because there's more total equity in the balance sheets. I mean, think about what they sold. That just goes from you know their, their long-term land asset to cash and then into another long-term land asset. And this is why a lot of bankers like to work with us is because you know there's more total equity on the balance sheet. They can actually loan more under the same underwriting standards. Now, we still do underwriting that frankly looks a little bit more like a bank than a traditional land investor because we need to make sure that the additional payments that a farmer would have to us are covered by the cash flows of that operation. And we're not essentially a form of kind of shadow leverage. So we maintain a lot of the same discipline, a lot of the same underwriting standards that are public from a lot of our you know, kind of farm credit, uh, farmer Mac brethren out there. And we will often work with our farmer's banker just to make sure they're familiar and that we are uh, you know, keeping that financial discipline that Kyle talked about at the, at the beginning. Yeah. And so, Ben, maybe talk about the obligation. We're not calling it debt because it is equity, but there is an obligation on the part of the farmer, right? What are they signing up for exactly? 
Yeah. So, I mean, they're essentially selling a share upfront of the property, and then they're going to pay an annual payment on that share alone. And that annual payment can be paid in cash or in additional equity. But if it's an additional equity, it's actually more expensive because cash now is worth more than cash in the future. And so really like that rate is what we need to make sure they have the cash flows to coverage. And so, you know, we always say that fractal is not a silver bullet. We can't take a brand new farmer and get them to 10,000 owned acres. So many times in ag tech, uh, you know, there's all this overhype of like, we can do all these things. What we really are is we are another tool, like Kyle said, to help great farms, great operations with great cash flows move a little bit faster, a little bit further within discipline. So in other words, they have great cash flows as opposed to waiting to get all those cash flows to put 40 or 50% down on the next field. You're able to use some of those for the fractal payments and your debt service coverage on the next deal. And so that way you're able to accrue more land from that land. You're then able to get more cash flows and it becomes this great virtuous cycle of both building equity and driving operational leverage which means that you have more profit per acre, not just on the deal that you have with Fractal, but on that entire operation. But is it a set amount that they owe Fractal on, uh, on an annual basis, or is it a percentage of the uh, the cash flows from that property that might vary from positive to negative? It's a, it is a percentage of the land value that's updated every year just using the public indices that are out there. So Iowa State has a great land survey. That's what we use in, in the case of... Uh, you know, somebody like Kyle, uh, who's who's in Iowa, um, typically it's about four and a half percent today. That rate can vary. And then there's discounts on that rate, depending on the management practices that you use in terms of investments in soil health that investors want to see and that we just think are great long term investments in the asset. And that goes up and down, like you said, Tim, like the this whole product has symmetry. And you, you mentioned risk management in farmland. Land values go down. Our investors are coming down with you. Land values go up. We both win. And because we're a minority player, when land values go up and fractal looks a lot more expensive, well, the rest of your equity went up by generally the same or more. And so we really see that symmetry of we win when farmers win and we lose when farmers lose as being a key part of our strategy of aligning incentives. And typically, if land is depreciating, if we're in a depreciating environment, uh, you know, cash flows are are tighter in that environment as well. But then, you know, my annual obligation is lower because, you know, it's it is kind of one for one. Yeah. And the four and a half percent they're using, like, hey, let's say the the USDA or whoever it is says farmland in that county went up four and a half percent this year. And that's the physical dollars. Four and a half percent of the investment is what Kyle is paying in cash back to the investors. Yeah, it would, we'd look at the total the total field valuation and then multiply that by fractal share and multiply that by four and a half percent or less in the case of MBS, who, um, you know, the the field that we have a deal on, um, we're lucky enough to uh, be investing in a field that has some great regenerative practices that are qualified. And so that rate ends up being a little bit lower. What gets investors excited about this? I mean, we're in a higher, you know, higher is all relative, but higher interest rate environment right now. You're mentioning four, four and a half percent. Why is this exciting for an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a short-term excitement and a long-term excitement. I, I think in a, in a nutshell, farmland is like your running game. Like it's going to get you through the really tough times and it sets you up to maybe make some some big passes downfield. And so what I mean by that is long-term massive supply and, and demand imbalance. Obviously, we're not making any more land, the, the classic slogan, but I think it even goes beyond that. If you look at um, some of the analysis on Brazil, you know, our biggest commodities competitor here in the United States up to half of Brazilian farmland could be out of its climate optimal zone by 2030. In other words, it's not the best place to raise corn or soybeans is where they're growing them. You know, and so if you look at the growth of demand, the limit or even decline of supply, that is a place you want to be as an investor over the long term. 
And then over the near term, this is just a really steady asset. We're coming out of a last 30 years where everything was up into the right, low interest rates, global stability across the board. And I don't think many folks expect that level of stability and growth and low interest rates over the next 30 years. And farmland tends to perform really well in times of volatility. So you combine just really good underlying fundamentals, a great financial dynamic that protects the rest of your portfolio, inflation protection, um, and just, you know, you talk about that four and a half percent that moves up and down. It's not like you're just locked into to credit. And then the last thing is agriculture is one of those strange, wonderful places where in the right scenarios, there are win-wins between environmental impact and financial impact. Now, it's not everywhere. We learned that from carbon. We've learned that from a lot of different places. But where a farmer is using one of these climate-friendly practices for good agronomics, good cash flows, that's a place we really want to double down because that will lend itself to even more impact on the financial side. And so we really like an ESG story that also has a cash flow story behind it. Call us old-fashioned. We really like cash flows. And so just bringing all of that together to an investor and then being able to say, hey, by the way, we can do this in a way that we think will pay a little bit more because of lower transaction costs because we're aligning with farmers. That ends up being a pretty darn compelling story to folks. My understanding is Kyle or another farmer that's involved with Fractal can you know, buy back this fractional ownership anytime after two years up to 10 years. So between two and 10 years. What I'm thinking, though, is that, you know, the problem you're solving is having the cash to buy the land in the first place. Where are they supposed to get the cash to buy it back? And, wh- and what happens if, you know, they don't have it? Uh, yet another conversation Kyle and I have had uh, many a time. Um, so we, we built this. So it's not just kicking the can down the road, as you're kind of saying, in terms of the capital needs. So we have the ability for a farmer to renew the instrument at 10 years and we darn well have every incentive and want to earn the right to get that farmer and that investor's business again at that 10-year time horizon but we had to keep farmer control in terms of you know the the land itself and liquidity that that was just a really important thing otherwise we essentially wouldn't be any better than a normal renter kind of investor relationship where you know you you risk losing that ground and so instead we put that control in the farmer's hands because you never know what happens in the farm and you have to control for those long tails we never want to be responsible for a really tough family situation. And as Kyle mentioned, there are a lot of tough family situations with land. And so we had to have a good out clause because there's just a whole long tail of, uh, of situations, whether it's someone sadly passing away, other financial needs, just differences in, in life. And you know, a family that was on a farm together that now maybe has one person remaining, like just a lot of things can happen. And you have to get, like you said, the devil's in the details. You have to be prepared for every one of those. Otherwise, you could be a real source of, of pain for that customer you're working your tail off to try to solve. Right. And I do see, you know, an important value Fractal provides, as you said earlier, is is standardizing, productizing and, and having a system for each and every one of those risks. Because on a one to one basis, I could see, you know, any one of those derailing things and it going horribly wrong. One question I have, though, is part of my personal criticism, not just me, I'm sure others too, I just can't speak for them, of of platforms is that why so many have failed is at some point the interests of one side that you're trying to serve conflicts with the interest of the other. And so you you almost have to choose, like, who am I here for? Am I here for the farmer or am I here for the investor? I know the idea is that you're here to try to find the most fair standardized deal for both of them. But uh, how do you manage that so it doesn't become a uh, platform only farmers want to be on or only investors want to be on because they can find a slightly better deal elsewhere? 
Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like we need to win on the farmer side to have any value to investors. And so, and like I said, everything that we started with is just kind of the first principles of who do we think the best manager of that asset is? We believe that's the farmer. And when you think about uh, that from a, a selfish financial perspective, that really manifests itself in lower transaction costs. All of our deals are off market. So they tend to be better deals. And third, and probably most importantly to us, is we get information that no farmland investor gets because our goal is to get on the same side of the table as fast as possible with the farmer. So Cobb, he shares his yield data because he knows that we will underwrite a higher valuation because of the agronomic performance that MBS Farms has. And their agronomic performance is fantastic. So I'm willing to pay for that because we believe in cash flows, that old fashioned belief again. And so when we go and you know, we agreed on a valuation, we explained how we got to that valuation with Kyle and with his team and some of his advisors. And what that really does, it allows us to de-risk the transaction. And, you know, classic finance kind of 101 is like, you know, you have, you have returns and then you have risk. And if we're able to decrease risk, that means that we're able to then lower our total cost of capital, which allows us to be even more competitive than other investors. So lower transaction costs, lower risk, then we can win. There's plenty of margin out there in between us. That's how we solve it in the short term. In the long term, we want to have multiple investors on our platform who are essentially bidding for these instruments that happen. And if we can do that, all of a sudden we can be more of an arbitrary platform between the two because then there's real price discovery. Now, that takes a lot of time to get to. And so today we just try to be as transparent as we can in the contract and in the valuation process. And if there's not an agreement between us and the farmer, like we're not going to be able to do a deal. And really, at the end of the day, the ability to deploy capital with really smart long-term operations, like that's a pretty darn good barometer of how we're doing. I have a theory, and tell me tell me if you think I'm wrong, because there's nothing that makes me happier on this show than being wrong and having a guest tell me I'm wrong. Um, but it's that you're going to get a lot more farmer interest than you will investor interest. And so not that that's bad. I mean, the, the chances of lockstep getting the exact amount of interest is pretty much zero. Um, how will you decide which farmers get the money? Well, I mean, I, I think I, I would say you might be wrong, Tim. Farmland has one to 2% institutional ownership. And that's the after a lot of great work done by a lot of folks who've been on the show, whether you're talking acre trader, farm together, it's not a lot of great models that have come out. You know, our model is really built around solving that, that farmer need explicitly. Um, and at the end of the day, if you look at the largest asset managers in agriculture, like these are really smart folks. A lot of times they come from farming backgrounds, like they get it, but like, why are they stuck at one to 2%? It's not because there is an investor demand. Most of these folks, if you talk to them, uh, you know, off of a recording, we'll talk about that long queue of capital uh, that they're trying to deploy. And there are folks that are today effectively, you know, losing clients and losing investors because they can't put capital to work fast enough. And their whole problem is deal flow, because what they're trying to do is go out and compete with farmers who have local knowledge. And there's a heck of a lot more farmers than folks working at these investment companies to compete for deals. That is just like not a fair fight. And so really, we think that there is just a massive amount of demand on the investor side. And we think it's best served alongside farmers in terms of returns. And we think we'll actually be able to make the, the return profile on farmland as an investment class a little bit more institutional grade than the traditional model by doing this. So really, we think that the, the big kind of critical path or, or really tough slog for us is going to be, yes, matching that, that supply and demand over time but is really going to be kind of proving out this model and making sure that we don't have any missteps where we're missing a big gotcha on either the investor or the farmer side and finding where they have complementary needs or where one wants something and the other doesn't care. It's about aggregating all of those small details together to find the win-wins because really this is one of those, you know, if we think agriculture is a win-win between, you know, kind of, uh, you know, 
cash flows and sustainability, I'd say this is an even bigger win-win between farmers, investors, and the environment. All right. Well, I'm going to come back to the question about how you choose the farmer in the case of limited funds. But first, I want to challenge you one thing that you said there. Farmland prices are certainly correlated with commodity prices, but in other models, the investors getting the upside of both. So spikes in commodity prices they're capturing, as well as appreciation of farmland prices. In your model, they're, they're really only capturing the appreciation of farmland prices. Am I, am I wrong on that? And, and how do you look at that or help investors think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's different ways you can manipulate the cash flows. At, at the end of the day, um, commodity prices are a major driver, along with long-term interest rates and along with just you know, kind of long-term supply and demand of, of farmland in that local market, best alternative uses, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's really just a lag if you're looking at a kind of a cash rent scenario and farmland scenario with commodity prices. A lot of investors really like that lag because what it does is it insulates. So last year, the rest of the market wasn't doing so hot, at least my portfolio. Maybe you were smarter than I was, Tim. I almost guarantee it. But, you know, Negro farmland was north of 24% in the Corn Belt. That's why investors care about this thing, um, even if there's not the massive upsides. Because when everything else is losing, farmland's gaining. That is a tremendous benefit in investing. And the beauty of the, the thing here is, is that deal flow doesn't have to be dependent on an auction or an available property. It's dependent on a partnership with a farmer. I, and I finally got that through my head that... I've repeated that a couple of times, but the deal flow between Fractal and a farmer is agnostic of of there being a property to purchase this instant. You should probably have something in mind. You should have probably something that you're going to deploy this towards. Yeah, obviously, otherwise, it's not a good a good decision. Just to let it sit there in my account is not a good decision. But um, what I do with that cash is the next most important decision I have after after receiving. Mm-hmm. And how does Fractal make money? We charge the investors a essentially a, an ongoing management fee and then an origination fee. All right. All right. Now back to the question. Kyle and five of his neighbors are all on board with Fractal. Give it to me. One piece of land comes up. All five of them want it. Maybe Kyle's a bad example because I think he has an inside track. But, you know, assuming all else equal, uh, who do you give the money to? Kyle's a great example because, you know, once we've underwritten an operation and we've spent the, the time to, to get to know them, they'll be first in our queue if we have more, more farmer demand than we have capital. So that's something that we commit to um, every day because it's just a, a way that we think is right to do business in this industry. Um, after that, uh, a lot of it's first come, first serve, but uh, really it comes down to the, the valuation and the type of management practices and just the quality of that operation, which isn't to say that somebody who's not a great fit for fractals and a great farmer, they just might not be a fit for this financial instrument. And that really comes down to agronomic performance. We really like yields. We don't like things like productivity indices. Again, we like cash flows, we like yields, and there's a lot of things that the data of folks who have been on your show, Tim, where that technology can be brought in to really show the quality and the future yields of an operation. So that's kind of first and foremost. Second is just financial quality of that operation. What do their cash flows look like? Are they heavily levered? Do they have strong debt service coverage ratios? Um, what's their profitability per acre? Like you can figure that out from the same information that a bank usually takes. So we're not asking farmers for unique information. Generally, we want to ask for things that they already have somewhere, to Kyle's earlier point. And then the last thing is just what are the long-term management practices and what are the impacts of climate on that piece of ground? Most of the United States is in a pretty climate advantage place relative to the rest of the world, but not all of it. And so, you know, there are parts of the country where climate change is not going to be favorable according to most of the models. We're going to discount that versus something that's in Iowa, the Eastern Dakotas, Southern Minnesota, you know, core Corn Belt, even parts of uh, parts of the Delta that are managed in a very intentional way, kind of coming back to that agronomic performance that will build soil health in the long run. And so that's why we're incentivizing these regenerative practices. It's not out of the goodness of our own hearts. It's because we think it's a better long 
cash flowing resiliency bet that will pay over time. Mm -hmm. And are those discounts set for those practices? Yeah, right now it's uh, 0.2% or 20 basis points per practice, up to six of them. Uh, your, normal, uh, your, your normal ones, cover crops, uh, no-till, strip-till, in-season nitrogen, uh, edge of field habitat, and we have some bonuses for doing things in a continuous fashion. As uh, Dr. Wick would say, you know, you got to do it where it makes sense for your business so that, you know, you might not do no-till every year, especially if you're in the Red River Valley, like we have a lot of moisture, heavy clay soils. Um, so we want agronomics to be first. So we try to keep that flexibility for farmer choice and agronomic choice to be in the program while still driving incentives to maybe tip the scale for somebody who's looking to expand or start the practices. Well, let's let's give you guys a chance to kind of final comments, anything that we either didn't get to that you want to mention or anything you want to emphasize from both of you uh, before I let you get on with your day. Tim, one one thing that uh, and, and Ben, if this is appropriate or it's not appropriate, I'll let you make the call on this. But I think, you know, maybe hearing it from my voice is, is important in saying that, you know, I don't think this is an opportunity or a tool for everyone. And it is certainly not one of last resort. That is a key component of this is that there are tools out there in the industry that are the tool of maybe last resort or that we can't check enough boxes to make something else work. To me, this is not that <laughs> and is never going to be. It's more sophisticated than that as it should be and as to give comfort to both the farmers involved in it and the investors involved in putting something like this together. If I'm wrong in saying that, Ben, it's your company, you, you say what, what you think, but I, I think that's a key component of this is to not vision this as the last place to go to be able to pull the trigger on a property. That is very, very correct, Kyle. Yeah, I think at, at the end of the day, like our core customer is somebody who's looking to grow. And that doesn't have to mean acres. They're looking to grow their business and improve their business. And I don't care if that's a 400 acre farmer, a 4,000 acre farmer, or a 40,000 acre farmer. Um, farming is capital intensive. And so we're helping to essentially support operations that have great cash flows, bring some of those cash flows in the future so that they can continue to grow in the way that they've proven to do so. Not a silver bullet. We're not the star of the show. We're just supporting great operators and connecting them with the line capital. There's the old quote of, you know, the, the future is here already. It's just not evenly distributed. Our model is being done by, you know, dentists and investors that know farmers, you know, childhood friends and whatnot all over the country today. It's just not standardized. It's not easy and it's not scaled. And, you know, if a farmer has a great sweetheart deal, please take it. We'll be there for the next one. Please take the best deal you can as Frackle. It's kind of like what we said in Carbon. Like, we don't need to just push ourselves to go get a sale. At the end of the day, this need to, needs to make sense for your business at the right time. And we'll be there when, when it is because this need is so great on the farmer side that we are not worried about demand as long as we do the right things, listen to our customers, grow with our customers, and have the discipline to do good deals with great farms. We really do think that farmers are a better investment than telling farmers how to farm. In other words, letting their own self-interest guide that investment decision. This isn't out of the goodness of our own heart. It is a great prudent financial decision for investors, and we think will help change farmland investing for good, just financially and just the development of the asset class. It also will have a lot of great, hopefully ecological and social benefits for those of us that love vibrant rural communities and, and whatnot. The second big point is we really do think investing in soil health is also a great investment. If you look at a lot of the technology and the data behind things like regenerative agriculture, it works at scale. What's tough is that we haven't had the aligned incentives over the right time horizons to help risk share enough with folks. We're asking farmers to take a three to five year risk with no promise of upside. There's a big meta-analysis meta that essentially showed that like 65% of the time it pays 
Well, that's not good enough on an individual farm level unless we're providing financial support. And really, impact dollars, they're always kind of at risk of drying up. One of the things that we are super passionate about is we think it's a good investment. We can put our own skin in the game on that, and we think that it will pay. And so our goal is to get soulless capital that doesn't care about impact or ESG to invest in these practices because they're a darn good cash flow bet. That is the model that Fractal brings alongside solving this like key farmer problem. And if we can do that, we can help push agriculture in a direction that is still farmer led and driving more of these practices that frankly, a lot of people want to see played out there without relying on carbon markets, without relying on you know, 45Z or any of these other you know, programs that are out there. And if those programs come to fruition, that's amazing because you can do those and fractal. And I want those to all come to fruition. So we're just really excited about this being a win-win-win. It's going to be a lot of work. We have to, we will have some some stumbles. But if you're going to build an egg, you need to be thinking beyond that deal. You need to be thinking in decades. And you only do that well by not kind of pushing yourself too far, you know, over your skis uh, with your customers and spending a lot of time with them. Well, I can tell you the Fractal Agriculture team has definitely been spending a lot of time with farmers and investors alike. Uh, the platform is fully live and they're doing deals in the market today. Ben says they're always looking for farmers and investor partners who like the model. So you can go learn more over at fractal.ag. We'll also link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much to Ben and Kyle for being on the show today. Thanks to the Soy Checkoff for their continued support of the show as our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of Ag innovation.